Welcome to Pioneering Today with me, Melissa K. Norris, where I inspire your faith and your pioneer roots. I show you how to grow your own food, heirloom gardening, how to preserve your food at home, and modern homesteading. Tune in every other Friday as I share proven strategies that anyone can do to live the pioneer lifestyle. Make sure to head over to melissaknorris.com and subscribe to receive free Pioneering Today articles and updates. I am really excited to talk to you guys today about home food preservation. So home food preservation is one of my favorite topics. Um, we preserve a lot of our own food at home. And one of the reasons that I really like home food preservation is because I realize not everybody can raise their own livestock. Uh, not everybody can even grow their own food. Um, most people can grow some of their own food, even if you live in an apartment. And we've talked about um, different ways that you can do that before. But preserving your own food at home is something that anybody who has a kitchen can do. So that's one of the, the things that I'm really excited to talk to you guys about today. In fact, we're going to be going over six ways to preserve food at home. Because traditionally, we we really think of just the top two ways to preserve your food at home that most people are familiar with. I would say the number one way that people preserve their own food at home is using a freezer. A lot of times we freeze our food to preserve it. So most homes know how to do that, um, or most people know how to use that method. And then the second one that I would say that comes behind there um, is canning, home canning. And a lot of people know how to, know how to home can or um, have someone that can teach them or that they can learn from. And if not, we'll go into that as well. Um, but I would say that overall those are the most two used items of home food preservation. And, which is great. And so, but there's many other ways to preserve food at home. And so I'm really excited to do an overview of all of those with you today. And so um, we're going to be going over canning. So we're going to go over water bath canning and pressure canning. We're going to be going over dehydrating your own food. And we're also going to be going over root cellaring and cold storage techniques that don't require electricity. We're going to be talking about dehydrating your own food. We're going to be talking about um, salt curing, and we're also going to be talking about using vinegar oil and alcohol to preserve some of your own food at home. So I am, this is just a topic that I'm totally passionate about. Um, so my best tips for when you want to preserve food at home, and this is going to be primarily for all of the methods to preserve your food at home, is to start with the absolute most fresh produce or items that you can get. Um, anytime that it's fresh and you go to preserve it, you're going to have better results. So the, the fresher it is. So if that's, um, you're growing at home, that's awesome. Um, and if not, then try to get it from a local farmer, um, or a farmer's market or a CSA. And then of course, if you don't have any, um, of that available to you, then if you're after purchasing your, your produce and those kind of things from the grocery store, get to be friends with the, produce manager and the produce people at your local grocery store and ask them, hey, when are your deliveries coming? When is the produce that's going out at its absolute freshest? Um, and a lot of times they'll be able to tell you. And the other thing is to get um, everything in season. So the, our absolute best way to preserve things is to preserve it when it's in season. Um, you're going to get the, the best price on it. Um, and so that's, that's how we like to do it, not only um, if you're purchasing it, but also if you're growing, obviously, then in-season is going to be the way to go to preserve it. So um, the, first, the first thing that we're going to talk about is canning. And to go further in-depth in canning, but I do want to talk about it today a little bit, 
um, you're going to want to look at our Canning 101 podcast. So you can see that at morphpnorris.com. Click on the podcast button on the menu bar, and then you can see all of our previous episodes are listed there. And so you can go through, and then that also gives you access, if you're listening to this show or any of the other shows, to all of the resource notes. So anything that I'm talking about during the show, um, you can go to the resource section of that podcast episode, and then you can either read further or click on the links that will take you to the things that I'm talking about. So that's just something that will help you um, as you want to delve deeper into the subject. So for water bath canning, water bath canning is what you're going to do for all of your acidic foods. So jams and jellies, chutneys, marmalade, pickles, um, anything that has an acidic level in it, either you're adding acidity to it versus um, with vinegar, or be it vinegar, lemon juice, lime juice, um, that kind of a thing, or the like our fruits naturally have um, acidity in them. So that's why those are safe to water bath can. Um, and then we've got the items that we have to pressure can, and those are going to be our non-acidic items. So any of your vegetables, your meats, or your combination recipes. Now typically, tomatoes can be water bath canned. Um, you do need to usually add a little bit of lemon juice or vinegar to the jar when you're canning tomatoes. And the reason for this is because tomatoes aren't as acidic as they used to be. Um, with all of the, the breeding and the tomato varieties that are out there, even if you're doing an heirloom variety, they don't have the acidity level that they used to. And so unless you have a kit at home, which I don't, and that allows you to measure the acidity of the tomatoes that you're canning, um, to be on the safe side with the water bath canning, you do need to add some lemon juice or vinegar on it. And so whatever recipe you're using, whatever manual you have, will tell you in there, um, depending upon the, the size of jars that you're doing. So you can use vinegar or lemon juice. And you don't taste it in the end product either. It's just a small amount. It's just a couple of tablespoons. Um, so you're not going to taste it in it, but it just adds enough acidity to it to make it safe to water bath can. Um, like your stewed tomatoes and your salsas who generally have vinegar or lemon or lime already in them. So your pressure canner, of course, is what we're going to use for all of our vegetables and then um, meat. Like we do smoked salmon, um, you can do chicken, you can can pretty much any meat in a pressure canner. Um, and then along with combination recipes, so like a lot of your spaghetti sauces, if you're going to be adding in um, tomatoes and peppers and herbs, mushrooms, that kind of a thing into your spaghetti sauce, then that takes it to where you generally need um, to pressure can it. I prefer to use my pressure canner, honestly. I have to heat up a lot less water with the pressure canner than I do with my water bath canner. So for me, it's faster. And it uses less water, which is always a plus, especially in the summer months. If you're in an area where you're dealing with water sh shortage or in like a survival preparedness type situation, uh, water is a scarce commodity. And so I really like the pressure canner because it uses less water. Um, and for me, it's just faster. And anything that is faster in the kitchen, oh, honey, I am on it. <laughs> I love all the tools that make kitchen life faster. So for me, that's one thing that I really like my pressure canner to use that for. Um, and so for, for further canning, um, always make sure that you follow um, a safety guide. So either the manual that comes with your pressure canner, you want to follow that. Um, follow tested and true recipes or from your local county extension office. Um, Scanning is one of those things where I'm a super creative cook. Um, whatever ingredients I have on hand, however I can make the recipe work, tweak it just a little bit, that's the way I cook. Um, recipes are a guideline for me. <laughs> um, but when it comes to canning, um, the recipes, especially with their acidity level and the ingredients that are in them and the ratio that is in them, for most of the recipes, you really should not alter that unless you have a really deep understanding 
of the acidity levels and what's safe to alter and you have a, you know, an extensive canning background because if you don't have enough acid in there, you're not processing for the right times, or you add too much of another ingredient and it sets the acid out of balance, then you can become at risk for um, food poisoning and botulism and some other nasty stuff. So one place where recipes are not a guideline for me and should be for you is in canning. Um, and like I said, you can catch our canning 101 recipe where we go episode where I go more into detail on that um, at mostcanners.com under the podcast button. And then, so the next one we come up with was freezing. And freezing seems pretty straightforward, yeah? I mean, you have a deep freezer, yeah, put it in there. Um, but with freezing, especially with your fresh produce and your meat, um, there's definitely some tips. There's some vegetables that you need to blanch first. Now, I have to tell you all, if I can save time doing anything, I am so going to do so. And sometimes I have done some shortcuts that have came back to bite me in the rear. And this is one of them. So um, we had butternut squash in the garden. And I really wanted to freeze some up because it's just one of our favorite winter squashes is butternut squash. I adore butternut squash. I love it in soups. Um, you can actually alter it. You can use um, steamed butternut squash in pumpkin recipes, baking-wise. Um, I just really love butternut squash. One of my favorite ways to have it is just diced and then tossed with a little bit of olive oil and some garlic and then roast it with a little bit of sea salt and then straight on a little bit of aged parmesan. Oh, man. Oh, love it. So, anyways, I decided <laughs> that I was going to freeze some of it up because um, we have, like, a bumper crop. And so... I peeled it, and then I just diced it up in chunks, and then tossed it in a freezer bag and put it in the freezer. So a couple of months later, I went to pull some out to use them for dinner, and I cooked it, and I cooked it, and I cooked it, and it never really felt done. And and we tried to eat it, but it had a weird, the texture was wrong, the texture was off, and the flavor wasn't quite there. It just, it wasn't good. We were just like, you know, tried to force a couple of bites, and we're like, okay, this is bleh. and so we threw it away, gave it to the dog, I think, the chickens. Um, and so I thought, well, that's funny, and then I tried it again with the next bag. Okay, it wasn't funny. The problem is, is with certain vegetables, you need to blanch them before you freeze them. So blanching them is simply either steam blanching them or tossing them in boiling water for just a couple minutes. You're not fully cooking them. And then putting them in, in freezing cold water to stop the cooking process, and then you freeze them. And it seems like a big extra step of work, but the reason for it is because when you blanch them, you stop the enzymes that are in the food. Do just enough to kill the enzymes because otherwise those enzymes continue, and then that's what makes the once it's frozen, it changes the texture and it changes the flavor, and it's not any good. So um, you really want to make sure that you do blanch vegetables that need to be blanched. And then with freezing fruit, this is a shortcut actually that has worked excellent for me, and I'm going to share this with you because we love to share um, freeze berries. So on our little homestead here, I we grow raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, and I say we grow blackberries, but we don't really grow blackberries because here blackberries are actually classified as a noxious weed because they are so invasive. So we have um, wild blackberries that just grow like crazy on our 15 acres. In fact, we mow them and chop them down and anyways, to try to keep them in check. But I also grow blackberries because I have a lot of blackberries. So freezing berries is something that I love to do in order to use later in baked goods, pies, or like right now, we're having a really weird hot spell here in the Pacific Northwest, and so I really don't want to make jam. And none of the homes, at least not most of the homes, I should say, don't have air conditioning if you live in the Pacific Northwest. Normally, we don't really have that much hot weather. Well, this year is starting out a little bit different. Um, you know, we're hitting up in the 90s and stuff, and so you can imagine I don't want to add canning 
my water bath canning on top of that for making my jams and jellies and syrups right now because it's going to make my kitchen and my house unbearable. My kitchen is open into my living room and stuff. So um, one of the great things about preserving when you're making jams and jellies and syrups is you can freeze the berries ahead of time. Now, you really can't do this with other vegetables because it's not going to work out so hot if you try and freeze them and then can them. But with berries, it works really well. So I'm freezing all of my berries right now so that when we get some of the rainy days kicking through, then I'm going to make my jams and jellies. So to freeze berries, I... One is, um, so we grow organically and mine aren't near a roadway. Um, they're on the, in our back part of our property. So I do not rinse my berries before I freeze them. And I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> because when you rinse the berries, you're introducing more water to the berry. And so then actually, even if you let them dry all the way, um, some of that has soaked in. And so then when you freeze them, it's going to make them tougher and it's going to make them mushier. So I eat, I don't know about you, but when I'm picking my berries, I eat them. I like to grows, taste the produce as I'm picking it, so to speak. And I don't wash the berry before I eat it when I'm outside. So I don't wash them before I freeze them either. And that way I don't have to mess with all that spreading it out on a cookie sheet and a single layer stuff. Mm -mm. I just I just dump my berries right into my freezer container and in the freezer they go. I'm going to give you one little tip and this is for raspberries. So raspberries, after you pick them, don't rinse them, put them in the fridge. Let them chill and then put them in the freezer. And that way, they're not going to break down as much of the cells because they hold so much water because it's gotten cool. And then it's freezing instead of going from like hot outside or room temperature right into freezing. Um, they freeze better that way. You're going to have a better end product. So that's my tip on freezing berries there. Um, and so freezing berries is one of the, the ways that we really like it. And, of course, you can freeze your meat. And I'm going to say if you're using your freezer as a means of food storage, which we absolutely do for um, we raise our own grass-fed beef, so when I'm butcher in the fall usually um you know about a half a cow goes into one of the big deep freezers that's about where it'll fit um and then we raise our own pigs our own pork and then we raised our own meat chickens and i have episodes on on those that you can catch at wolfkingers.com if you're interested in raising your own meat or seeing what each of those entail you can catch that so anyways my freezer is kind of at a premium space with meat but keeping your meat fresher and longer is you're going to a vacuum food saver um, we finally got one this past year, and it has been so nice at keeping our stuff. Um, and even the fruit, um, like I chopped up rhubarb, actually. I love rhubarb. I just chop up rhubarb and freeze it. And then I use it later in pies or I do a strawberry rhubarb jam, that kind of a thing. And so I just vacuum sealed it in the pre-measured two cups that I need for my recipe and those portions and stuck it in the freezer. And so vacuum sealer is something you definitely want to think about using if you're going to be doing a lot of freezing. Um, and so the next thing that we want to go into is dehydrating. So dehydrating is a great way to um, to preserve your harvest. Uh, it takes very little storage space, which is yay, a plus. Raise your hand, y'all, who live in little little tiny houses and not have much square footage. <laughs> um, I love dehydrating because it, it takes it down so much. It's very light, so you don't need a big old shelf system in place for it. Um, plus, you can take it with you on the go. So when you dehydrate things, it's really easy to for kids to pack their own, put it in their backpack if they're out hiking and camping. Um, I, I just love dehydrated food for that. Um, plus, dehydrating prolongs the shelf life of a lot of food. Um, though your foods that you're dehydrating for long-term food storage, just like your canned goods, they need to be stored in a cool, dark, dry area because light degrades food, even if it's in the jar or if it's already dehydrated. So if it's kept in a cool, dark, dry place, then it's going to be, um, it's going to stay much longer. 
Uh, our herbs, I dehydrate the old-fashioned way, depending on what they are, or we'll use our dehydrator. Um, you can, the old-fashioned way is just without electricity off-grid. Um, you can just hang them in a warm, dark area. So a lot of times, um, depending on the time of year, if we have our wood stove still going, I'll hang bunches of herbs. The key is to not hang them in too big of a bunch. You want the air to be able to circulate between them. So usually about five to eight sprays, no more. Um, and so we'll hang them upside down near the wood stove, and they will dehydrate that way. If it's really warm where you're at and not really humid and wet, we don't want to introduce, you know, don't want to get moldy. Um, a lot of people hang them from covered porches. You just don't want them in direct sunlight because then it can actually burn them um, as they're dehydrating, and you don't want that to happen. So there's definitely ways that you can use a dehydrator. Plus, you can, I love the dehydrator is great because you can also dehydrate your meat. Um, you know, jerky, hamburger, even. So the dehydrator is really a cool tool. Um, and then the next one that I want to go and talk about is your cold storage or root cellar. So I think this is one of my other absolute favorite ways because cold storage and root cellar really take up, oh my goodness, it's so easy. It doesn't take, you don't have to do anything. Like you go out, we pick the cold storage items out of the garden, um, and then I just stick them in the cold storage. But there are a couple keys for cold storage and root cellaring. Um, you need a cool, damp, and dark area for your root crop. So this is going to be your potatoes, your carrots, your beets, parsnips, um, cabbage, and apples, too, actually. Um, they like it to be, they need a little bit of dampness. You don't want it too dry. Um, winter squash and pumpkins, though, they prefer it a little bit warmer and a little bit drier. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of people um, have some tips with one delta. She brings hers in, and then she wipes it down with a cloth that has some vinegar on it. So if there is any mold spores or anything like that from the garden, the vinegar is gonna not damage the fruit, not harm you. Um, and she wipes it down before she puts it into cold storage, but then make sure that it's fully dry before you put it into your cold storage. Um, like with the acorn squash, um, and this is really important, your acorn squash and your butternut squash and your pumpkin, um, they really need air to circulate around them. So you're gonna wanna put those items on a tray or a shelf where air can circulate all the way around them. If you try and put those in a bag, like a burlap bag or something like that, they're gonna they're gonna rot. Trust me, I did it last year. <laughs> I had um, I ran out of shelf space, and so I decided I was just gonna toss some of my acorn squash into a burlap bag and store it. And it only lasted for about four weeks, and then they got moldy and rotted. So lesson learned, um, and I'll just pass that on. Just trust me <laughs> on these things. Um, you know, I'm always, like I said, I'm always looking for shortcuts, but a lot of times those shortcuts just don't, don't work out. So that's one thing, uh, to remember. And so the pumpkins and the winter squash beans, they like it a little bit warmer and drier. I actually store those on the shelves of, um, our pantry floor, or excuse me, on the pantry floor and then, um, in the shelves we have, I have an open island in my kitchen. And so on the bottom shelves, um, because in the fall I do a lot of cooking with those squashes, um, I'll keep a couple in there. And then just pull them off the shelf as I need them. And then the rest I have in my uh, laundry room and pantry on the floor until we went through them all. Um, and if you have a garage, you're lucky. I don't have a garage yet. <laughs> I have a hay shed and a wood shed and a pump house. But I don't have a garage yet. So if you have a garage and it's insulated, a garage can be a great place. Put a shelving unit up in there and use that for your cold storage and root cellar. Um, and then another thing, too, is like with your um, potatoes, do great in a burlap bag. We had ours in a burlap bag all winter long, and then what I have left for these for seed potatoes actually planted this year. So potatoes do great in a burlap bag. 
Um, like your carrots and your beets and your parsnips, those do really well. You can pack them in damp sawdust. So you can pack those in bins and layer it with damp sawdust or leaves. Um, I know leaves is another really great way of damp leaves, actually, um, as, as a packing material. There's um, some tips for that. And then I'm really excited for this next one to talk to you guys about is salt curing. So salt curing is probably the oldest um, way that humans have been preserving their food since way back when. Um, you know, before refrigeration, which is relatively new when you want to look at the you know, span of the earth and time there. Um, and then the mason jar wasn't invented until 1858, and then it took a while to spread. So really, canning is really a relatively newer way to preserve food, honestly. So when we get back towards salt curing and fermenting, um, that's really the way that, that food was traditionally kept for long-term use. And plus, you know, the other thing, too, is, is you know, back then is people didn't have this huge food storage that we have now. Um, you know, they ate the, and of course, some of them, you know, struggled, obviously, but they ate the food that was in season and they, you know, preserved what they could. But they didn't have this big, huge stockpile. Of course, most of them didn't, you know, have one the conveniences we do, but their livelihood wasn't spent in a career. Like we, you know, typically, you know, my husband and I both have outside jobs, so we leave our home and go to work and then come home. But, you know, back there, your survival in your home and was uh, your full-time job. So usually there was always at least one person at home if the, you know, the husband didn't, you know, if you weren't a farmer or whatever, that that was what you were doing all the time was, you know, growing the food and, and have the time for that. And, and I realize now in this day and age, sadly, we don't really have as much time to do all that. But um, it's a top priority at our house. And, you know, my husband and I both work outside the home still have day jobs um, and are still able to do this um, this lifestyle. So I just want to encourage you if you're like, I don't, you know, I don't have time to do all of this. You can fit it in. Um, I promise. You really can. It, it has to be a, a priority and a goal um, that all of you in the household work together on. But it can definitely be done. So the salt curing and the fermenting I just love because really, especially with fermenting, um, it creates such good bacteria. And typically we hear bacteria and we think, oh no, you know, like bad, both the bacteria infection, that kind of thing. But good bacteria, especially if you hear people talking about probiotics and, you know, the healthy bacteria and stuff, actually we are really missing those sources in today's typical um, modern American diet. And so fermenting is an excellent way to bring that back. And, you know, a lot of people think fermenting, you're going to automatically think sauerkraut. It's not something that, that we, is a fermented food that people normally, just typically, that's their go-to when they think fermented. Um, but you can do fermented fruit. Um, you can you can do, you know, fermentation was used in meats and dairy, you know, think kefir. Um, all different kinds of things can be fermented. Um and it actually, a lot of times, makes the food more nutritious than it is on its own. So fermenting is something that I am getting into this year, and I'm really excited about. Um, and I'm going to be having some upcoming episodes on each of these, actually. We'll, I'll go further in depth into them. This is our brief overview of each one um, episode to just get you familiar with all the different ways to preserve your food at home. And then we'll go further and deeper into it with more of the how-to. Um, so salt curing, so the basic principle behind salt curing, and it was primarily used to do meat, um, is your, the salt draws the moisture out of the food. And moisture is where the bad bacteria likes to hang out and breed. 
So beltrang is really good for pork and fish. It can be done with beef as well. Um, and you, you know, typically the tools that you're going to need is a lot of salt, um, some glass jars or containers, and or crocs um, is what you're going to need to get started. And so, um, you know, like the, the rock salt, the buying salt in bulk, especially if you're um, familiar at all with, you know, being prepared uh, survival type talk is one of the things that they tell you to stock up on is salt because salt for most of us we can replace a lot of things if we live you know sugar most of us would do honey or you know different things like that but salt is something um that most of us do not have access to around us locally so for me there's no salt mines around here you know we're a good hour and a half away from the ocean you know just any natural source thing so salt is something that's a really good storage item it doesn't go bad um so that's something in fact i was super excited um i just got five pounds of Himalayan, um, pink Himalayan salt actually at this little store they have in a neighboring town to ours that gets like um, packages that have been, you know, ripped or stores are closing out or defects or whatever and then they resell them. And so I got, um, oh no, excuse me, it was 10 pounds, 10 pounds of pink Himalayan salt for five bucks. I was super excited. So anyways, I am starting my, um, my salt storage here. So, so how it works is you, um, there's two ways actually with this salt curing, but you typically are going to make a brine um, out of it and a really salty brine. Um, in fact, one of the measurements that they used to use was if the salt in the water, if the salt was thick enough to float an egg, then you knew it had enough salt in it. So that was one of the ways that they tested it. And then, um, then the meat or the item that you are salt curing has to be fully immersed in the salt immersion. You know, it has to be totally immersed in it, so it can't be popping up. Um, and so that's one way that you can do the salt curing. And then actually we could kind of do, I would say it's a form of salt curing is when we smoke a lot of our own salmon. I'm one of those weirdos where I really do not like fish. I know I'm crazy. Um, my husband loves seafood and he loves fish. And so he just can't believe that I don't have the, the same love for it that he does. But one way I like salmon is I love smoked salmon. And so we smoke a lot of salmon because that's what I like. Um, and so we actually do a dry brine when we smoke our salmon. So, and actually this is um, a little tidbit for you on smoked salmon. You're going to be smoking the meat. It actually is better um, for accepting the flavor and stuff if it's been frozen and then thawed. So we actually usually just freeze most of our salmon. Um, vacuum pack it and seal it, and then when we get ready to, to um, smoke it, then we pull it out and let it thaw. So, um, which can also be great, you know, because the, the, the one thing with freezing that you got to be careful is you have a long-term power outage, um, you know, your food in your freezer, you got to know either do you have a generator and enough gas to keep that going until the power comes back on, or if the total power fails, you know, like the grid, natural disaster, who knows what happens. Do you have the other ways of home food preservation that you can preserve that food once it thaws? So I always keep um, a year's worth of canning lids on hand, um, extra jars, um, and like I said, we're building up our salt methods, um, you know, got the dehydrator. Uh, tips, do you know how to dehydrate without your electric, without electricity? So that's some other um, things that we're going to be um, talking about. So I think it's great to, to learn how to do these things just in case. Um, so anyways, when we saw out the salmon, we put it in a dry brine, which we mixed up some brown sugar, some spices, and salt. Put that on the salmon and let it sit in that in the fridge overnight. And then the next morning, before we go to actually smoke it, then you rinse that off of it. 
and then you put it in the smoker and you cook it and then you save a little bit of it um and it's funny because this is totally dry but as it sits because that salt is pulling the moisture out of the salmon it creates a liquid brine in the pan and so then that liquid brine that's been created after it sits overnight is what we brush on the salmon as we're smoking and cooking it um so that's a form of salt curing as well. And then the sixth one, kind of almost the seventh one, because I talked about salt curing and fermenting, and I didn't really number them out. So our seventh one of our six dishes, you get a bonus one on ways to preserve your food at home, is immersing food in alcohol. So many foods can be immersed in alcohol to preserve them. So you've got herbs and fruits are immersed in alcohol to create extracts. Um, we make our own mint, vanilla, and lemon extracts that way. And then I've done in like, um, which you can also use vinegar in place of alcohol and sometimes oil. So I have done a garlic, um, garlic oil, and that was fantastic. Um, immerse that for salad dressing. You can do herbs in the vinegar for both flavoring and then for other things too. Like a lot of people like to use rosemary vinegar um, and different herbs and vinegar to use as like hair rinses. Um, or you can then take the herbs and you can do an oil immersion and then it pulls, the oil pulls that out from the herbs and then you can use it to make different homemade recipes, um, like, you know, balms and salves and lip balms, that kind of a thing. Um, and then also your summer fruit can be preserved in alcohol for summer baking as well. So I hope that all of these tips have given you guys some food for thought on some ways that maybe you haven't thought of preserving food before or some ways that you want to learn more about or get more into. And if you're like me and you're wanting to learn even more about these, then I'm so excited for what I have to tell for y'all. I have created the Preserve Your Food at Home Ultimate Resource Guide. So what it is is when you sign up for um, my email list at melissaknorris.com and right now on the right sidebar, you're going to see a little button to pop your email in there and sign up. Um, you're going to get this resource guide and you can download it as a PDF to your computer to save or you can visit it on my website. You'll get the link to it that you can get if you're on my newsletter um, for the link. And so it's got 80 plus resources. So I've created this resource guide. It's got articles, it's got videos, it's got tutorials, um, books and equipment. And I've listed the equipment like bare basics you have to have to do this and then ways and then equipment you can add to make it easier depending upon how heavy you're going to get into that particular way. Um, books that I have used, um, even some e-courses that, um, that I've taken and that kind of a thing. And it's totally free. Um, right now it's about 83 resources. But the cool thing is, is the page on my website, um, if you visit that one, is as I find more and more resources, then I'm going to continue to add to that. So that's going to be the page on the resource or the resource page on my website. We'll continue to have items added to it. So um, I hope that you check it out. I've had a lot of people been really excited about it. I've had people say that you know you hear ultimate resource guide and you're like, uh huh, yeah, right. And then they've gotten it and they were blown away and they were so excited. So I really hope that you'll take advantage of that. And so that's at melissaknorris.com. Grab your copy. And make sure to head over to melissaknorris.com to subscribe for free modern homesteading updates to help you live the simple life.